As you just heard from Matt, our brother is building a house. It's a beautiful house. He's been at it for over a year now. As I, I look back over that, that timeline on Facebook, he broke ground in September of 21. And ever since then, he has, by his own admission, been working like a crazy man. By the end of last fall, he had the foundation laid and the framing done and the roof was on. And then last winter, he spent in plumbing and electrical. In the spring, the garage went up. June, he's hanging drywall. The past couple months, he's been doing sweeter things like painting and getting things nice. And I'm sure Chelsea's really enjoying how the light fixtures are in and all, all these things. There's thousands of man hours that he's put into this. And it's not done yet, but if you've seen it, you, you, it's just so obvious that it's going to be a beautiful Beautiful house. And he spent his blood and sweat and toil and possibly tears to make it beautiful. Now what do you think would happen if I came in one night to the job site with a bulldozer and I just ran it right through the roof of Matt's house? What do you think Matt would do to me? I mean, he's a Marine and he's got a good imagination. (laughs) When he's through with me, I would imagine that you wouldn't be able to find enough of my remains to put in a matchbox. (laughs) And we would understand his reaction because the house that Matt is building is precious to him. He probably hates it some of the time, but it's precious to him because he has so much invested in it. And now, friends, today in our passage of Scripture, we're going to see that God is building a house. It's a beautiful house, glorious house, and we call it the church. And God has a lot invested in that house, much more than Matt has invested in his. God's house isn't finished yet. But it's very, very precious to him. So what do you think his reaction is when someone threatens to damage his house? As we turn to God's word, I trust that you'll be helped to understand today that the church is God's work. It's God's work. The church is God's baby. It's not the work of man, and therefore you and I must make sure that in our attitudes and in our actions, we treat her with great care. So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you want to use one of the blue Bibles in the seat in front of you, that's on page 953. Page 953. Now, if you also, you may want to follow along on the uh, gray outline that's in your bulletins. It might help you follow my line of thought. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As you're turning, I'll just give you a bit of context because it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Corinthians. So at the end of chapter 2, Paul has been describing two types of people. He's described the natural man and he's described the spiritual man. The natural man is someone who can't understand God's wisdom because he doesn't have God's spirit enlightening him. 
And so when this natural man considers Jesus and when he hears the message of the cross, it sounds like foolishness to him. He can't get it and he doesn't really want it. That's the natural man. The spiritual man, on the other hand, as Paul's been painting the spiritual man's portrait, that's the person who has been awakened by the Spirit of God to see God's wisdom on display in the cross of Jesus. And as a result, he embraces Jesus as the Savior that he so desperately needs. The spiritual man, short version, is a believer, a Christian believer indwelt by God's Spirit. Whereas the natural man, shorthand, is a non-Christian. Someone who's an unbeliever, who's without the Spirit of God. And now Paul, at the beginning of chapter 3, is going to start talking to the Corinthians about their own situation. We'll read all the way from verses 1 to verse 17 of chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, As infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, And another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives... He will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, And you are that temple. This is a wonderfully sweet, stern, and heavy passage. We start out, as we see, with Paul rebuking the Corinthian church for their fleshly fixation on human teachers. 
We know back from chapter 1 that they have been, they've just been fussing at one another. They're obsessing about which teacher of the gospel they personally like best. And then they pick quarrels with each other about, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Paul. I follow Peter. It's just slightly more sophisticated than, my dad can beat up your dad. (laughs) But not much more. Not much more. Now, what kind of people say, my dad can beat up your dad? Kindergartners. Kindergartners do that sort of thing. And as you see at the end of verse 1, Paul calls them infants. Because their behavior is wretchedly immature. He reminds them that that, that back when he was present with them and he was just planting the church, he fed them with milk. Simple, basic, biblical truth. Because they were just baby Christians and they couldn't handle much more. And that was okay. And Paul stayed with them for a pretty long time, about 18 months. And eventually he had to leave them. But then Apollos came to them. And he's a really gifted teacher too. And he labeled, labored in the gospel among the Corinthians for a while. And the long and the short of it is, it's been about five years, give or take, since they were established as a congregation. Five years with some really good teaching in that time since they received the gospel. And by this time, they ought to have a measure of maturity. But Paul takes a look at all this bickering and all this infighting and all this, my teacher is better than your teacher. And he says, you're still acting like kindergartners. It's actually so bad that he says, listen, I almost can't talk to you like you're Christians. He says, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Right? Remember? What does spiritual people mean? That's not like, oh, super spiritual. No. Spiritual people equals people who have God's spirit, i.e. believers. I have to talk to you like you're people of the flesh. Because you're still of the flesh. When you've got that kind of jealousy, that kind of strife going on among you, aren't you of the flesh? That's what he says in verse 3. Now at this point, I've got to take a moment and step out of Paul's argument and address something because of the context that we're in at Redeeming Grace Church. This passage has actually been badly misunderstood and badly applied, especially in the last hundred years, in some circles of evangelical Christianity. This passage has been used to teach that there's ordinarily, normally, three types of people in the world. Over here are the natural people, the unbelievers. And over here are the spiritual people, folks that are walking with the Lord in joy and obedience. And they're growing and they're fruitful. And then in between is this this other category, carnal Christians. Who's heard of carnal Christians? Fleshly Christians. Carnal just means fleshly. These people in the middle are saved. They're going to heaven. But they lead a life that's no different from the world. They live in disobedience. They can even live in immorality. They aren't growing. They're not seeking to grow. They're not well connected to any church. Maybe they haven't even been to church in years. They're not engaged in the things of God. 
They've not been filled by God's Spirit. And their co-workers would be quite surprised to learn that they have anything to do with Jesus at all. They're Christians, it's thought, and Jesus is their Savior, but He's not their Lord. We heard that language before. Jesus is my Savior, but not my Lord. They're carnal. And that's somewhere that's somewhat a normal, common, though unfortunate, state of affairs. Now, in order for this to change, and for them to move from carnal to spiritual, they need another experience of God's grace. They need to confess their sin. They need to present every area of their lives to God. And then in faith, they need to invite the Holy Spirit in to come and fill them. And this additional step, after their conversion, this additional step will move them out of the realm of carnality and into the realm of the Spirit-filled life. And then now they'll be a spiritual person, where Jesus is now their Savior and their Lord. Now, if you're not familiar with this teaching, well, I'm kind of glad for you. And we're going to talk and see why this passage is not teaching this, we have to ask, is this threefold framework natural, carnal, spiritual, with these two being saved, but these two are the ones that look like each other, is that, is that a normal state of affairs? Is that what Paul's teaching? The answer is no, not if you're understanding it like that. Now yes, Paul is looking at the Corinthians right now and saying, wow, Right now, I almost can't tell that you're any different from the world. And yes, he's calling them carnal, fleshly, and he's calling them brothers, and he presumes that they do have the Spirit, even though they're not acting like it right now. But is Paul allowing that this situation is normal? No way. No way. He considers this a dreadfully weird and untenable situation. The immaturity that these Corinthians are displaying, this is what it's like. It's as bizarre as if you were to have a healthy, ordinarily, normally growing 16-year-old who was walking around in diapers and sucking a pacifier. And if, 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 if someone walked into your living room like that, you would think that was a, just a really bizarre you know, incongruity. And that's how he wants them to react to their current situation. They are not to be this immature, not with what they have. And it's crazy and, and odd and, and un, untenable that they should be like this. And that's what's dangerous about the popular understanding that carnal Christianity is something normal. It's not. It's not. And here's how I'd say it. The Bible's teaching is that the normal Christian life, the normal Christian life, is the Spirit-filled life. It's impossible to take Jesus as Savior and not take Him as Lord. That is not possible. So the ordinary Christian experience is to grow, to mature, to make progress in obedience and holiness. Is it slow sometimes? Yes, it's slow sometimes, but it's progress. And to increasingly walk in step with God's Spirit, living in active living faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. That is just what's ordinary 
and normal. And if and when that's not the case, like it is with these Corinthians, something's got to give. Something's got to give. It's got to break either one way or the other. Either repentance will come, and they'll come to their senses and be restored to the ordinary, healthy patterns of life in Christ. Or, if repentance does not come, and they persist in worldliness and carnality, they will be revealed as those who truly do not belong to Christ. Who truly do not have the Spirit and are not going to heaven. And Paul already has a category for this. He's hopeful. He's trusting that his rebuke is going to be effective in restoring them. But if you skip forward to chapter 15, he's going to say this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Unless you believed in vain. And then, fast forward again, by the end of 2 Corinthians, since even though there's been some good fruit, some of them are still stubbornly persisting in their sin, he'll be saying things like this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. So friends, please, please, the Word of God teaches that fleshly, worldly immaturity cannot be the ongoing condition for a child of God. The Corinthians are going to have to repent. It's going to have to break. Or they will show themselves to be no true believers. Now that was a very long excursus, but it's necessary because we're in the context of the American Evangelical Church. So some of you grew up in or came to Christ in situations and contexts where carnal Christianity was taught as something normal. And as a result, many, many people have been lulled into a false sense of security, unaware that their condition is highly dangerous and their eternal souls are at stake. Because they think everything's fine. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not living for God. But I'm saved. And not living for God. Not possible. Now let's return to the specific situation of the Corinthians. Because their fleshly bickering is harming the church. And Paul's going to show that it's totally irrational anyway. So after that rebuke, he's going to offer a corrective. And the corrective is, the church is God's church. It's not the work of man. Let's read verses 5 through 9 again. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So this corrective goes right to the heart of how we are to view Christian leaders. The reality is, gospel ministers toil. But God causes the growth. 
So you guys are dividing up into rival factions, he says. Rah, rah, Paul. Rah, rah, Paulus. As if we were anything to write home about. But we're not. We're lowly servants, for goodness sake. It was Jesus who is the one who gave us our assignments. And we just went out and worked. And yes, through our work, you came to believe. So what, what was the actual situation in Corinth? Paul had planted the field. He was the one who initially brought the gospel, and he left when Jesus sent him elsewhere. Then the Lord Jesus sent Apollos to the field, and he watered the seed. Different assignments, as the Lord saw fit. Not as they saw fit, not as the Corinthians saw fit, as the Lord saw fit. Who actually brought the field to life, though? Neither of them. It was God who brought the field to life. Neither the planter nor the water is anything, relatively speaking. They're not to be given the credit. They're not indispensable. Others can do the job. But only God, only God can give the growth. His is the work that ultimately makes the difference. Now that doesn't mean that gospel ministers are unimportant to the plan. Romans 10 says, how will people believe unless they hear? And how will they hear without someone preaching to them? The Lord of the harvest sends out laborers into his harvest. But let's everyone understand where the laborers stand in the pecking order. The planter, Paul says, and the waterer are working for the same goal. And God will reward us. Not you, by the way. God will reward us appropriately. We're just fellow workers laboring side by side along one another in the field under the master's orders because it's his field. It's his crop. The ministers are his servants. And it's really, really dumb for the crop to start losing their minds over which of the workers in the field is the best. Because the life didn't come from them. It came from God. Friends, make the obvious connection, please. Redeeming Grace Church is not BJ's church. It is not my church. We're here for a time. On assignment from the Master. But we aren't indispensable. Maybe we're going to be here for a long time. But it's not we who ultimately are bringing the goods. We can't open blind eyes. We can't open deaf ears. We can't raise dead sinners to life. That's Jesus' work. This is Jesus' church. RGC is Jesus' church. And another obvious application, please do appreciate and honor and respect your leaders and appreciate and honor and respect other teachers. But don't get confused that you're BJ's disciple or John Piper's disciple or John MacArthur's disciple or Tim Keller's disciple. Be glad for their work. Be glad that through their ministry you grow. But don't let your identity get wrapped up in human gospel teachers. You don't belong to them. You belong to Jesus. And this actually protects us, by the way, when Christian leaders stumble, as deeply distressing as that is. Some of you, for instance, have probably benefited in the past from the ministry of Ravi Zacharias. And then it came out after his death that there was all sorts of awfulness there. But God will evaluate the teacher. The truth is that you are helped not by Ravi Zacharias's truth, but by Jesus' truth. If God used that in your life, 
God was the one who caused the growth. And God forbid, God forbid, that BJ and I were ever to fall away. That would be grievous. But it would not negate the gospel message that we're proclaiming. Your faith is in Jesus, not in us. It's God's gospel. This is God's church. He's the one protecting it. He's the one causing it to grow. You are God's field, God's building. So Paul switches the metaphor now. Read verses 10 through 15 again. According to the grace of God given to me, not because I chose it, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled, actually wise master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be made manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So now we have the temple, or sorry, the church, compared to the building of the glorious house. The temple, in fact. And Paul, in the metaphor, he was the guy that was first on the job site. He got to lay the foundation. Now what foundation does he say that he laid? Jesus Christ and the cross. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We're back to the stuff from chapter 1. It's all about Jesus. It doesn't matter that Jesus being lifted up on the cross seems foolish and weak to the world. He is the eternally secure foundation of the church throughout all ages. Because, of course, the word of the cross is not weakness and foolishness. It's power and it's wisdom for the salvation of sinners. And Paul, as this wise master builder, laid that foundation for them in Corinth. And now others are coming along behind and they're building on the foundation. Who's he talking about? That's not um, rank and file Christians, if you will. That's still t- he's still talking gospel ministers. He's still talking gospel workers. And these builders, like the workers in the field from the metaphor before, they're ministers of the word, they're building the church. But Paul says, let everyone, that all those gospel ministers take care how they build them. Some of you remember when this structure was being built, and I wasn't here for that, so I don't know who, who, who this was, but somebody laid that foundation. Somebody laid the concrete slab. But then it was James Powell, who was the overall foreman and general contractor of the whole job. So he oversaw raising this building off up from its foundation. Now what if James... Seeing the slab of the site here had not taken care how he built on it. And what if he'd sent you all 100 feet that way to try and frame up the building in the swamp? How would that have gone? So if that's too crazy to imagine, just imagine, what if, what if it, nothing that drastic, what if he just had you frame it up five feet this way? How would that have gone? Mostly on the foundation, but not entirely on the foundation. The structure would still be in in danger of collapse. 
See, friends, gospel ministers must take care that they build only upon the foundation which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. BJ and I must not get cute. We must not get creative. We're not authorized to build anywhere but upon Jesus and Him crucified. And we've got to base all of our teaching upon the gospel. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then gospel ministers have to take care that they build on that foundation with the right materials. Paul describes two kinds of building materials. Gold, silver, precious stones. That's in one category, right? That shows you that this is a temple. What kind of building do you build with gold, silver, precious stones? This is God's temple. Or wood, hay, stubble, straw. All right, now who knows the story of the three little pigs? Right, kids, you're listening? Whose house, whose house was able to withstand when the big bad wolf came and blew against the house? Was it the pig whose house was made of straw? Emma says no. Was it the pig whose house was made of bricks? Or the sticks? Not the pig whose house was made of sticks, but the pig whose house was made of bricks. That's the one that was able to stand. It's the same with gospel ministers. They have to build with good, durable, solid materials. Why? Why do they have to take such care? Because there's a day of testing coming. There's a great building inspection. And it won't be a test by wind, it's a test by fire. So the work of gospel ministers will be tested on the day when Jesus returns to judge the world. And he will evaluate his servants. Did his messengers build well upon the foundation of Christ? And on that day, Jesus, who is Lord of the house, Lord of the church, will examine BJ's work. will examine my work and every minister's work and will pass it through the fire to see what comes out on the other side. Do we know what exactly that will look like? No, we don't. But this is is what's going to happen. Gold's going to remain and straw will be consumed. And in this way, the quality of our work will be revealed. Let me read to you Don Carson's reflection on these verses. He says, This ought to be extremely sobering to all those who are engaged in vocational ministry. It is possible to build the church with such shoddy materials that at the last day you will have nothing to show for your labor. People may come, feel helped, join in corporate worship, serve on committees, teach Sunday school classes, bring their friends, enjoy fellowship. Raise funds, participate in counseling sessions and self-help groups, but still not really know the Lord. If the church is being built with large portions of charm, personality, easy oratory, positive thinking, managerial skills, powerful and emotional experiences, and people smarts, but without the repeated, passionate, spirit-anointed proclamation of Jesus Christ and his, Him crucified, we may be winning more adherents than converts. The fundamental non-negotiable, that without which the church is no longer the church, is the gospel. God's folly, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Brothers and sisters, this is sobering. 
This is sobering. Pray for BJ. Pray for me that we may labor well among you to build. Pray that we would build in a way that will pass through the fire. That we will be faithful lest what we build into you does not prove durable. If we build with shoddy materials, that will be to your eternal loss and ours. We do not want to have our work among you burned up such that we scrape through the testing, but only as through fire. Both for your sakes and for ours, we desire that what we build upon that foundation of Christ would pass through the fire. If it does, you will have been the beneficiaries, and we will receive a reward from the hand of our master. Whose church this is. Whose church this is. Now Paul closes with a warning. A warning in verses 16 and 17. Let us all beware doing anything to endanger God's church. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Do you not know, he says, because they ought to know, that you corporately are God's temple and filled with the Holy Spirit. This isn't, by the way, them all individually the temple of God. This is talking about them all together. They, the church at Corinth, are the temple of God. Now what is it that makes the temple the temple rather than just some pretty building with lots of gold? What made the temple the temple? It was the presence of of God, the holy presence of God filling you with glory. That's what we are. God's temple is holy, filled with the Spirit, and you, redeeming grace, are that holy temple. The believers at redeeming grace, the community of faith here, are the holy temple. That's an amazing reality. It's a wonderful privilege. You believers can go to one another after the service and say to one another in hushed voices, can you believe it? We're the temple. The holy presence of God dwells in our midst, in this church. But that comes, that's glorious. That's glorious. How much does Jesus love his church? How much does Jesus love his church? How well is he working for her well-being? But that comes with a warning. Now, I think the main thrust of the warning is still directed at the gospel workers, but I want you, I think it's wider applicationally as well. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. See, friends, God loves his church. He's jealous for the welfare of his church. The church is his son's precious bride. God has a lot invested in the church, he has the blood of his own son invested in this church. And if someone takes a bulldozer to his beloved church, God will respond with anger and righteous indignation. And God will destroy that person. Now if the Corinthians are alert, they should recognize this. What is their immaturity? What is their quarreling and their fighting and their jealous strife doing? It's harming the church. It's harming God's church. It seems that they've gotten a little bored with the message of Christ crucified. 
they've started looking for teachers that will be elegant and eloquent and cool and persuasive and sophisticated. And they're in danger of getting themselves shifted off the foundation with builders who are going to stack the blocks just a little bit off, one by one by one, until the whole structure is in danger. All this is doing damage to God's church. Paul wants them to know God will judge those who do damage this church. Now how should we hear that same warning? They're making a bit of a mess of the church. How are we tempted in our day to make a mess of God's church? How might our attitudes or our behaviors threaten harm? I thought about a couple. What about relational sin? Epistles have a lot to say about relational sin. Not being willing to forbear with one another. Not being willing to forgive your brothers and sisters when they wrong you. But instead holding resentments and grudges and keeping a very good record of wrongs rather than honestly and humbly working through conflict. Which will invariably invariably arise. Now this is what was happening to some of the folks in Corinth. And think how destructive such sins can be within Christ's church. Some of you experienced other situations where that kind of damage was done through relational sin that wasn't repented of. Relational sin can be as horribly effective as a wrecking ball. What about being content with immaturity? Are there any of us, like the Corinthians, who are steadfastly failing to move beyond the infant in Christ stage? Are you unwilling to move beyond a just good enough experience of God's grace? Are you trying to find the bare minimum of obedience? The bare minimum of commitment? The bare minimum of pursuit of God? And are you thinking you'll be just fine settling for a Christianity that doesn't look that different from the world? That immaturity is destructive within God's church. What about deciding that the simple gospel is just a little bit old hat? A little bit passe? You might, I might, decide that in order for our church to be relevant in this culture, we need to adapt the message a bit. I've heard of a church deciding intentionally, we're going to just just going to change it a little bit and emphasize certain things, de-emphasize other things. Perhaps it's time in a culture that's increasingly opposed to Christianity, perhaps it's time for a friendlier message with a little bit less about sin, a little bit less about specific sins, keeping quiet about God's righteous wrath against sin, downplaying the idea that there is a hell that sinners really deserve to go to, and that some sinners will go to. This is death. This is death in the pot. We have to continue to proclaim to everyone who will listen. RGC has to do this. To continue to proclaim to everyone who will listen. And more of them will listen than we think. That you and I and them are sinners and rebels against the Lord. We deserve death. We deserve judgment. Yes, we deserve eternal hell. 
Because once that message sinks into the human heart, then there is a hunger to hear good news. And there is great good news that Jesus Christ came into the world, sent by the Father because of His great love for rebellious sinners. And that Jesus perished upon the shameful cross in the stead of sinners and took all the guilt and all the wrath upon Himself so that we could be set free. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Your, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. See, gospel ministers must stick to the script. The old, old story of Jesus and his love. There's no deciding that we're going to move beyond that or that we need something new. We can't diverge into motivational speaking or be concerned about politics more than Jesus or social issues more than Jesus or your felt needs more than Jesus. And you, the congregation, have to hold us accountable for that. You've got to kick like mules if you hear us departing from the word of the cross. If necessary, throw us out on our ears. And you must... Let's let's think of the positive side of that. You must keep your attitude fresh. Your appetite fresh. You You must come week in and week out, ready and eager to hear us talk about Jesus and the cross. Don't get tired of gold. Don't get tired of silver and precious stones. Oh, another fine diamond. Another pigeon blood ruby. Now, it's not necessarily the most polished pigeon blood ruby. There's all sorts of ways that we can improve in our communication. But it's gold! Don't get tired of gold! Don't get tired of hearing about your sin and the Jesus who redeemed you by His blood and the need to repent and believe in His sacrifice for salvation. And don't ever get tired of hearing that that salvation has to be worked out in righteousness and holiness because we are the holy temple of God. Don't tempt us to unfaithfulness by wanting to hear pleasant words or wanting to hear your ears tickled. If you start wanting to hear pleasant words, that provides an opportunity for temptation to us to follow you, which would be death for us and death for you. Don't do it. Have your appetite whetted for Jesus and the cross and more and more and more of Jesus and the cross. So may the Lord, who is the master of his church, keep us faithful. Keep you faithful, keep us faithful. And may he cause redeeming grace church to be built into a beautiful house, part of the great, big, grand, beautiful house that's coming in. Squarely built, with good materials, upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, do keep us faithful. Do keep us on the balls of our feet, ready and always ready to be proclaiming Jesus and his love, Jesus and his cross, Jesus and his resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.